The following talk was given by Robert Rakusan Ricci at Zen Mountain Monastery. Rakusan is a senior monastic in the Mountains and Rivers Order and the maintenance supervisor at the monastery. We offer our talks free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at cmm.org. Thanks for listening. It's uh, such a pleasure to, and a privilege to address this assembly of noble friends, both here in this great hall and there where you are behind that magic lens. Mm. We are so fortunate to be able to uh, study the Dharma together. For any of you who do not know me, my name is Rakusan, my pronouns are he, him, and I am a monastic here at Zen Mountain Monastery. Today, I'd like to talk about reverence, devotion, and the heart of Buddhism. In a recent uh, monastic study session, Roshi asked us to look at an article by Ken McLeod published in Tricycle some time ago, entitled, Where the Thinking Stops. McLeod is a student and a teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, especially Mahamudra and Jokchen, and is um, a widely published author. Roshi thought we might benefit from, a, from his well-considered essay about prayer. It inspired me and provoked a lot of associations, and I thought I might explore them in this talk. So for McLeod, a daily practice of prayer helped him to discover faith, a quiet source of strength that, as he says, became vitally important to him and helped him to keep going and difficult situations. You know, faith, aspiration, bodhicitta, they're immense in our practice. They um, are immense um, motivations, and um, we need them. So Roshi talked a lot about faith yesterday. Um, I didn't know he was going to do that, but there he was. It, it cannot be exhausted. Uh, we should uh, talk about it often and um, uh, feel it every day. It's what um, moves us and uh, transforms us, finally. So especially in Sashin, we know that Zen practice is often very challenging. We can benefit from this source of strength that arises from faith and that is accessible through prayer to help us keep going. But McLeod is quick to say that by faith, he doesn't mean belief in something for which there is no evidence. He means the willingness 
to open to whatever arises in our experience. That phrase immediately reverberated in me as essential shinkantata, right? The willingness to open to whatever arises in our experience. Is this prayer? Well, at page three, where's page two? It's on the back of page one. (laughs) As a Sangha, I think all of us know about this dimension of our lives and our practice. The spiritual activity of resting in sacred silence, or speaking, or singing within, or aloud, singly, or as a Sangha, to the world, to our teachers, to our own hearts, to the mystery of life. At ZMM, it pervades our liturgy, our conversations, our work, our creative lives. It bonds us each to each. Because we live in a very intentional community, suffused with common values and uh, commitments, and because we share a common language and aspiration, we can immediately contact each other in beautiful, non-trivial ways and engage in the work and study of the Dharma. This is the Sangha treasure. But prayer is um, a really loaded word for some of us. For some of us, it may evoke an experience with Christianity or Judaism or some other religion that uh, felt unconvincing or magical or imposed or arbitrary. Some of us may be wary of a kind of prayer that presupposes a God in heaven that some of us no longer believe in. Though some of us do believe, do pray, or supplicate, or petition in this way, that can work. It can work for you. Many of us can't or don't. So what else can prayer be? McClude suggests that it represents possibilities we can sense or intuit. That's kind of vague. Possibilities? What possibilities? Possibilities for what? But maybe it's not something that can be specified. Leonard Cohen's songs are often um, like prayer. His song, Lady Midnight, may give us a clue. It's a kind of analog for the ancient Zen practice of yaza, I think. That's when monks would sit deep into the night after the zendo closed at the end of a day of session, sometimes outside under the stars, among the rocks and the mountains. 
And beneath uh, the great night sky, the monastic would enter Zazen, a prayerful solitude in which to investigate the possibilities. And as McLeod says, focus attention on something that inspires awe. So in his song, Cohen says, I came by myself to a very crowded place. I was looking for someone who had lines in her face. I found her there, but she was past all concern. So I asked her to hold me. I said, lady, unfold me. But she scorned me, and she told me I was dead, and I could never return. Well, I argued all night, like so many have before, saying, whatever you give me seems to need so much more. Then she pointed at me where I kneeled on her floor. She said, don't try to use me or slyly refuse me. Just win me or lose me. It is this that the darkness is for. I cried, oh, Lady Midnight, I fear that you grow old. The stars eat your body, and the wind makes you cold. If we cry now, she said, it will just be ignored. So I walked through the morning, the sweet early morning. I could hear my lady calling. You've won me. You've won me, my Lord. This song has always uh, inspired me. So when Cohen says, um, I came by myself to a very crowded place, he may be talking about planet Earth, which is very crowded these days. Or maybe the Zendo, which seems to get crowded now and then. And then he says, I was looking for someone who had lines in her face. Um, I was thinking maybe, yeah, a person of wisdom. I found her there, but she was past all concern. Yeah, sure, she's past all concern, self-concern, I think. I think because he's addressing her Lady Midnight, the, uh, the night sky above the universe, as an awakened bodhisattva or a Buddha. So I asked her to hold me. I said, Lady, unfold me. This is a simple petition or prayer. But she scorned me, and she told me that I was dead, and I could never return. We know our first attempts, our um, first petitions, may not produce immediate results. We know that in the Zendo. We know that in Tangario. We would like, and like the would-be monastic, um, knocking on the monastery gate, we may not be immediately admitted. Well. I argued all night like so many have before. 
that line I understand is can be understood as something like Yaza, arguing all night, sitting zazen all night, or Tangaria, or maybe like prayer. And then saying, whatever you give me seems to need so much more. It seems like no matter how long or hard we sit, sometimes it feels like uh, nothing seems to be happening. Uh, Our unfulfilled expectations. We experience a kind of spiritual dryness, maybe. A dark night. But if we persist or pray through this darkness, we can find our way. Then she pointed at me where I kneeled on her floor. Well, picture this. The Bodhisattva Lady Midnight with her Milky Way robe with whom he is arguing in the midst of whom he is sitting Yaza seems to be pointing at him or sitting down there below on planet Earth. We have been there. We are there. She said, don't try to use me or slyly refuse me. Just win me or lose me. It is this that the darkness is for. She tells him, to give up all his calculations, his discriminating thought, and just break through to realize the darkness as it is, empty. I cried, oh, Lady Midnight, I fear that you grow old. The stars eat your body, and the wind makes you cold. Here, now, finally, he sees her as she is. The stars pricking through the darkness of her black form, the vault of the night sky, the universe, cold, cold, cold. And he allows her to be so. This is insight into her true nature into his true nature. He has seen the bodhisattva. If we cry now, she said, it will just be ignored. Well, sitting on a rock in the night, in the cold, it's probably unlikely that he would hear the sound of words like this coming from some disembodied spirit up in the sky. But because Lady Midnight is an aspect of himself, he understands. He understands that though the feelings might arise, here and now, crying or expressions like this are superfluous or will just be ignored. So I walked through the morning, the sweet early morning, here now, after a long night, or perhaps a long lifetime, or lifetimes, of sitting, he sees. 
He sees his own mourning on planet Earth as it is. Sweet early morning. And he enters it. Yaza, Zazen. All of practice is about seeing things as they are. As they are. I could hear my lady calling, you've won me, you've won me, my lord. Listening carefully, as in Zazen, he can now hear or realize the non-duality of midnight and morning, the non-duality of prayer and the one praying, the non-duality of Lady Midnight and the little guy down there on the rock doing yaza. The sun has begun to rise. The hills are singing. Everything is as it is. The cosmic romance has come to this. So yaza is an act of prayer, an awe-filled reaching beyond oneself to realize a fundamental unity. Sometimes those who anticipate difficulty characterize Sashin as a kind of frightening ordeal, something that must be endured. But if Sashin is a song sung from your heart, and entered with um, full commitment, it can be a prayer, a joyful celebration of intimacy and illumination. Here's another story about prayer. It concerns someone who's on a camping trip and who gets lost in the wilderness, the wilderness of the heart, the wilderness of the forest and, desperate to find their way, stumbles upon clues left by a wise trailblazer, a teacher, who had come before. Mapless, tentless, and cold, you cannot see where you are, nor rest in the drizzle. The wet brush envelops you, game trails mislead you, you, who were once snug in a clearing with friends, were you so easily called away? There were images rippling in that pool below camp. Or was it the last of the sun glinting on the cliff above? Or the shadow of some large animal slipping away there in among the trees? These thickets are not those. The dervish Spruce, rake your passage from eye to eye, ridge to ridge. While you spend your breath, another sun sets. Broken branches, marks in the dirt, resin and scat confuse. There's no way but your own in this cracking tear and snap. But here now, in the dwindling light and the deepening chill, a ring of stones, someone less lost, left behind. Here now, crouch 
like an animal at a spring, your hand on the damp ash, black yet warm in all this rain. Your fingers gently pull away the paste on top, open the heart of the hole, and find the sad orange glow weakly winking in the bowl. Then you cut with the one tool you have curls of dry shavings from a barkless branch, and you carry them home. You bring what you have prepared to the ceremony, your face to the pit, not with the vigor of your youth, the frustrations of your middle age, or the chilled goose goose flesh of your ordeals, but bend to the work, and like a lover, send your softness, steady, steady, through the windows into the small house of the glowing coal. Watch how it brightens with each breath, how your long exhalation makes heat steady, steady, or the house goes cold. While your arms tremble with the weight of your body, look for fire in the earth. See a shaving nearby, open, whiten, bloom in flame. See how it relinquishes form. See how an old fire can burn again. We have all uh, been lost or felt lost before. Fortunately for us, we have discovered the teachings left for us by the Buddha. And with a certain focused or prayerful attention and effort, we can make those teachings burn for ourselves again and illuminate and heat the darkness and the cold of our delusion. When we earnestly and ardently offer our breath, our life on the way, if we are steady and persistent, the coal of our aspiration begins to glow and then ignite. The practice of breath in zazen is like this. At first, we just roughly inhale and exhale, trying not to lose count. But as we pay closer attention, we see a whole world of breaths. Some have ripples and gaps. Some move in or out with a wave motion. Some are warm or cool or moist or dry. Some are delicate like feathers. Some are shallow or deep. But as we attend, as we are prayerfully mindful, steady, steady, we come with Ken McLeod to a place where thinking stops. We become absorbed by the breaths we breathe and we lose ourselves for a little while. Something begins to brighten, to bloom in flame. 
prayer takes many forms in Zen. Sending out a prayerful intention, as in the Bodhisattva vows that we chant each night, raising bodhicitta, the aspiration for enlightenment. That's a prayer. The four immeasurables. May all beings be free from suffering and the root of suffering. May all beings know happiness and the root of happiness. And all the dedications in the liturgy, too, like this one. May we appreciate the compassionate teaching of these great masters and show our gratitude by accomplishing the Buddha way together. Orioki is entirely a prayer of gratitude. May we exist in muddy water with purity like a lotus. Thus we bow to Buddha. We ask, oh, don't ask who or what we ask, but we ask, please reveal yourself. All of Zen can feel like a prayer, a reverential offering, a life within the sacred. Dido used to talk about the resonant frequencies that sometimes seem to reverberate up near the ceiling in the Zendo when we chant together, when we pray together. All of our voices blend together inside of prayerful chanting and create this effect of harmonic resonance up there. Other, other voices, Dido used to call them the angels. And then sometimes people would start chanting with the angels. And we would hear the resonance of resonance. The Eno says, Whenever this invocation is sent forth, it is received and subtly answered. Oh, don't ask by whom or what. I suppose this could go on forever. Chanting is a physical form of prayer. We, we give it voice. Bowing and making prostrations are other physical forms of prayer. When they are full body and mind and not mechanical, they are prayer. So is working, walking, breathing, or can be. In her book on mysticism, Evelyn Underhill says, mystical prayer has nothing in common with petition. It is not articulate. It has no forms. It is, as she quotes from a medieval mystical text, naught else but yearning of soul. The expression of a person's metaphysical thirst. In it, the soul is united without the intervention of imagination or reason or of anything but a very simple attention of the mind and an equal, simple application of the will. 
simple formula there. In the cloud of unknowing, a 14th century spiritual guide for contemplative prayer, composed by the great author of so many other inspirational texts, anonymous, there is a path presented called the Via Negativia, the negative way, maybe. It is a practice of clearing the mind of all distractions, praying, not this, not this, not this, until the reaching and ardent heart and mind are emptied out and the fundamental is realized beyond any mental conception and without any specific form or image. Cloud of unknowing. This is quite like when Avalokiteshvara exhorts Shariputra to realize all dharmas are forms of emptiness in the Heart Sutra. Not born, not destroyed, not stained, not pure, without loss, without gain, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, and so on. In this way, the Heart Sutra and the Via Negativia are dispositions of the heart. Prayerful longings or yearnings towards some undefinable union or completion. Prayer preserves the ineffable, the unknowable, the mystery that calls us. Saint John of the Cross wrote about this in his Ascent of Mount Carmel. He says, To reach satisfaction in all, desires possession in nothing. To come to the knowledge of all, desire the knowledge of nothing. To come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. To arrive at being all, desire to be nothing. To come to the pleasure you have not, you must go by a way in which you enjoy not. To come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by the way in which you know not. To come to the possession you have not, you must go by a way in which you possess not. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. When you turn towards something, you cease to cast yourself upon the all. For to go from all to all, you must possess it without wanting anything. In this nakedness, the spirit finds its rest. For when it covets nothing, nothing raises it up and nothing weighs it down because it stands at the center of its humility. This is via negativia. In his song, You Have Loved Enough, Leonard Cohen um, does zazen and sweeps the marble chambers of his mind until his teacher sends him down below into his heart where he he discovers his true nature. I think he's praying again. I swept the marble chambers, but you sent me down below. 
You kept me from believing until you let me know that I am not the one who loves. It's love that seizes me. When hatred with his package comes, you forbid delivery. And when the hunger for your touch rises from the hunger, you whisper, you have loved enough. Now let me be the lover. That line always gets me. When the hunger for your touch rises from the hunger. I hear it as when you long for unity or an all-consuming love or simple completion. When you pray, then you experience the open space of your own heart and realize the activity of love itself as the full and complete answer to all of your longing. Later, in another place, Cohen says, I closed the book of longing, and now I do what I am told. This seems to be a progression or some kind of maturity, I think, wherein it is no longer about you and your tragic self-conscious longing, but something more elemental and foundational and practical and selfless and useful and celebratory. Service, perhaps. Reverence. Prayer. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.